because uh, I know this isn't going to be a one-week message. It's going to be a couple of weeks uh, dealing with this uh, passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But as I was thinking about what we had been going through uh, with the lessons from the wilderness and the series on Wednesday nights, looking at Israel and looking at what God uh, was doing to teach them, to prepare them for the promised land, of course, we know uh, they made the wrong choice. They didn't have the faith to trust him to go into the promised land. They wandered for 40 years. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have a passage here that really helps us understand what went wrong with uh, their particular uh, situation. And not only that, but uh, admonishing us as believers that uh, we ought to be careful because we can, we can also fail like they failed and miss the will of God for our lives. Now, it may not be as dramatic. You may not be in a desert somewhere, wandering around, uh, not knowing where to go. Uh, but you, many Christians, I believe today, are basically wandering in a spiritual wilderness, uh, not really knowing the will of God for their life, and never will really know the will of God for their life. And that's a pretty sad state to live in. And that's basically what it's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and giving us some admonition about that. And so we're going to look at this I'll look at the first 13 verses of this chapter, and then we'll get into this. I'll start on this message today. I'm not going to finish it. Um, we'll, we'll work through this over the next couple of weeks. So it says here in verse number one, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat that same spiritual meat, and did all drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these sayings were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And I'll just throw in this last verse here. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would just help in this message tonight. I need your help. I need your guidance in, in how this message should go. I just pray, Lord, you would use it to teach us what we need to know so we all can go forward in the perfect will of God for our lives. We know that is your will for us. And I just pray, dear God, we learn from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, um, this passage gives us the example of Israel as it relates to reasons why those are saved, can be overthrown in the wilderness. And that's the word there, overthrown. They were overthrown. Now, God doesn't just overthrow people for no good reason. He doesn't just judge people for no good reason. Uh, they were actually, they put God in a position where he could not bless them and bring them into the will of God. So the will of God isn't something that you can just take. It's something that God has to bring you into. And if God doesn't bring you into it, the chances are is that you're not allowing him to do what he needs to do. In fact, in the passage, it says that he was not able to. God was not able to, <laughs> you know. So you think, well, God's able to do anything. Except God is not able to take someone that's unbelieving and put them into the will of God. He's not able to do that. <laughs> and so it wasn't, it wasn't God's fault it was their fault. It was all on them and their choices. And so we know we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about believers in the will of God. Believers doing the will of God for their life. 
this passage also, it's a warning uh, not to be overconfident in our own ability to handle temptation. Because sometimes maybe we grow up in a Christian home or maybe we, we've you know, gotten to some spiritual level, whatever that is, and we think that somehow we can, we can handle these things. I can handle that. Uh, yet the Bible says in the verse 12 of this passage, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And this was always Israel's weakness. And even to this day, they have way too much confidence in self. Uh, that's the problem today. You look at what's going on in Israel. They have confidence in their self. Anybody I've talked to that, that I remember we went to uh, Israel. We went to Shiloh. And at Shiloh, they had this model of a tabernacle. And the tour guide began, or the person that was there at Shiloh, who was one of the people that were running it, began to explain the tabernacle, but the thing is they explained it from a total lost position. This person was not saved. See, when I look at the tabernacle, I see Jesus, but they don't see Jesus there. And so he began to explain the tabernacle to everybody, and it was completely secular. It was humanism is what it was. We had to just stop him and say, you know, that's okay, we don't need your instruction. And we began to talk to our group about what the tabernacle means because he was just messing everybody up with his secularism. And so, to this day, they still have too much faith in themselves. The Apostle Paul had the, had the answer in Philippians 3.3. It says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. And that's the basis of the Christian life. No confidence in the flesh. All confidence in the Lord. That's where it has to become. And so, Paul did not want this church, the Corinthian church, and of course we're reading 1 Corinthians, and if you know anything about this church, you know that they were a troubled church, they were a carnal church, they had all kinds of doctrinal issues, they had morality issues, I mean you name it, they, they were guilty of it, and so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this thing here, and he began to tell them how it was that they could be overthrown in the wilderness, they could be out of the will of God and remain out of the will of God for their whole life, you know. And that's a sad thought to me. I would never want that for myself or anybody else. Uh, yet, that is many people's choice. So, I'm going to give you a couple of points here to start. Uh, we'll probably just look at the first six verses of this uh, tonight. Uh, but the first point I want to talk about is God's privileges for all. Now, this is very interesting because in this passage... You'll see the word all mentioned, I think it's four or five times, I forget which one. But it says, all of our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized unto Moses, and did all eat the same spiritual drink, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink. So what he's setting up here is this idea that the whole group, all of Israel, together experienced some very great privileges as a group. And, but that wasn't the end of it, because if you go on to verse number 5, it says, But many of them <clears throat> God was not well pleased. So all had the privilege, but many of them didn't fulfill the will of God for their life. And that's what we see here. So what he's trying to lay out first to the people is, <clears throat> see what Israel had going for them. Look at what was going on with these people. They all were a part of it. Now, number one, they were all uh, products of the Passover. The Passover is a picture of our salvation that took place in Egypt. That's when the blood was applied to the door. That's a picture of our salvation. And so they were all a product of that blood. They were all set free because of the blood upon the doorpost. Uh, and then it goes on to say some things here. I'll give you a couple of points. Letter A, God's presence. So they had the privilege of the presence of God. Remember we talked about that last week? We talked about the cloud. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So all the fathers were under the cloud. Now, what's the big deal about being under the cloud? Well, the cloud isn't as important as was what was in the cloud. <laughs> and we saw that last week that in the cloud was the very presence of God. All of our fathers. He says they were all experiencing the presence of God. They all had the same potential uh, where God was with them every step of the way. 
you know, interesting. In Numbers 14, 14, it says, And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that, the Lord, that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud, and in the pillar of fire by night. Two very important phrases in this passage is, thou standest over them. You're standing over them. Every day the Lord stood over his people. Every day he watched them and cared for them. Every day his presence was with Israel. And the other one is he goeth before them. He guided them every step of the way. And so this Israel, they had the privilege of God's presence every step of the way. All of our fathers. The next thing you see here is God's liberty. Notice in the next phrase it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, like I said, salvation took place with the blood upon the doorposts. Well, then what does this baptism represent? I, well, I've uh, talked to people that, and I'm not disagreeing with them, and I, I just have a certain way I look at this, but the Red Sea, you can say, well, that's my water baptism. Well, I, I don't necessarily tend to believe that. I believe that's a picture of your spiritual baptism. I believe that's the time where you finally recognize that your enemies have been crucified unto you. That's a time where you've realized that, hey, you know what? They, they can't hurt me anymore. I'm living in liberty at this point on. In fact, after the Passover... I don't hear them singing any songs. They weren't overflooded with joy. They were probably still freaking out over what happened with the firstborn of every child. They were scared of what Pharaoh would do. They were scared of leaving Egypt. They didn't know what's in front of us here. They had no clue. All of a sudden, they got to the edge of the Red Sea, and they're encompassed in by the mountains, the sea, and then also behind them, here comes this army. <laughs> Not too much singing going on around at this point, but I'll tell you, the moment they got through that Red Sea and got to the other side, all of a sudden you have the first song recorded in Scripture, Exodus chapter 15. Why? And you, you read the text of that song because the riders were cast into the sea. See, you could be saved, but that doesn't mean you know you got the victory. Amen. A lot of people are saved, and they're still walking around scared of everything. They don't know what's going to happen in their life. But there's got to come a time where you realize that you are safely been placed into the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized into him, and the world no longer has its hold over you. You are crucified unto the world, and the world is crucified unto you. Amen? Now, if that happens at the time you were uh, scripturally baptized, that's wonderful. But I don't think that's necessarily the story that we're unfolding here with the Red Sea. The Red Sea, it's talking about liberty. It's talking about victory. It's talking about understanding that, hey, I, I'm saved. I am really saved. Not just forever, but I'm saved from harm. I'm saved from danger. I have God with me, and he's, he's, he's destroyed the enemy of my life. And I can go forward in victory. That's, my friend, when the song comes out. You know, that's why you have to know you're saved. If you've been growing up in a in a situation where you were taught you could lose your salvation, there's not too many songs like Exodus 15 in your life because the riders have not been thrown into the sea. You're still thinking they're on your tail. <laughs> You're still thinking, they're coming to get me. I mean, I'm going to try my best to be spiritual, try my best to be re religious and all that. But folks, to realize that the waters have covered the army. They are dead. They are gone. They are never coming back. That's when the song comes. Amen? Amen. That's important. So they, they all, <laughs> they all were at the Passover. They were all under the cloud with God's watch, care, and his guidance. And they all experienced that liberty where God took all that water and just kind of whoosh and flooded that enemy. And of course, the baptism was the going in and the out. Amen? A picture of being placed into being placed into Christ, when you know your position in Christ, that's when true victory is known in your personal, practical life. That's why many spiritual warfare teachers and preachers, 
they'll start with you. If you're dealing with some kind of a spiritual problem, they'll start by helping you understand your position in Christ. You go to the book of Ephesians, you read through that. Every time it says in Christ and you underline that, you find out who you are in Christ because that's a different person than you were outside of Christ, amen? And that's victory, that's liberty, that's what Christ has done for you. And so that they all experience. Uh, Galatians six fourteen, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Uh, letter C, we have here in number two, verse number two, and they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what's this all about? We're baptized unto Moses. And now we know that our water baptism, it's not just about being placed into water. It's not just about getting wet. Every time a person's baptized, they're identifying with somebody. Amen. When you got baptized in, the, in, the, in the, these waters here or wherever you were in your church, you were identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if you were someone that didn't uh, want to be associated with Christ, then you wouldn't have been in that tank. But the thing is, you wanted to be identified with him. You became unashamed of being identified with him, and that's why you're willing to do it. And that's why as well you thought it was an important thing to do. Because I am unashamed and I know that before I can really go forward for God, I need to make a statement of being on his side. Amen. I'm with him. <laughs> you know, that's what baptism is, a part of it. Amen. Baptized unto Moses. So what they also had, all of them had, they had God's leadership in their life. God's leadership. All of them had that. They all had the same potential. That leader, he was the meekest man, the Bible says, uh, you know, other than Jesus Christ on the earth. Moses was a meek man. I mean, when his sister wanted to usurp authority over his life and, and started undermining him because they were mad at the wife that he married, you know, thinking, hey, God could speak through us too. Why are you greater than, than me, right? And what did God do? Immediately gave uh, Miriam leprosy. On her, on her hand. What did Moses do? Huh? Pfft, yeah, you deserve that. No, he was meek. The Bible says he fell on his face before God. So, Lord, have mercy on her. No envy and jealousy and, you know, oh, you got what you deserved. <laughs> they had a good leader. That was a good leader. <laughs> that wasn't a leader just gloated over people's failures. That was a leader who wanted mercy for God's people. Boy, that, we can learn a lot from that. You know, throughout Israel's history, you'd have um, kings that would get on the scene and the people would take on the characteristics of that king. If you'd have a wicked king, well, many times a wicked king would be because of wicked people, but sometimes there was wicked kings that created the wicked people. And because the, the king wouldn't put the right boundaries in place and wouldn't stand up for the right things, what happened is the people just allowed themselves to go past the boundaries. But as soon as there was a king that said, nope, we're getting back to God here. <laughs> we're laying down some boundaries. All of the people said, hey, this sounds like a good thing. <laughs> and they just follow along like sheep. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They all had the same leadership. All of them. They couldn't blame Moses for it. I know Moses had weaknesses. And you're not going to find a leader that doesn't have a weakness. We know all, sometimes he lost his temper, temper. He smote the rock instead of speaking to it. <laughs> and it cost him. It cost him going into the land. But yet he was a good leader. Israel's leadership was important. And God gives us good leaders too. I look at some of you folks and I see good parents. <laughs> parents that will bring their kids to church. And they won't... Let any old ball game or hockey game, you know, get in the way of bringing their kids underneath the word of God. Folks, that's important. <laughs> Many times, that's what's happening today. Oh, we go to church until there's a baseball game on Sunday morning. I told you about my first ministry when we, we, uh, we uh, rented a, it was, we called it the round hotel because it was round and it was a hotel. And it was probably about 15 stories. And we would meet on the main floor 
and it had big windows on the side. And every Sunday morning, we look out the uh, the town arena was beside us, and buses would come in with kids, not bringing them to church, bringing them to the hockey game. They'd all have their hockey sticks and their ice skates over their shoulder, just all excited. And there's their parents, hockey parents. Let's get our kids into hockey. <laughs> I remember I, uh, in that same place, I was sitting down with one of our ladies of the church and she was trying to sell her house. She was a widow. She just wanted me to be there. She was talking to the realtor and the realtor didn't know who I was. She thought maybe I was a son or somebody like that. She didn't, he didn't quite know. But when she had mentioned I was her pastor, then all of a sudden he began to talk about how good of a father he was. And how he brought his kids to hockey games. I'm being a good dad. Oh, I really wanted to give it to him there. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think that was really pertinent where we need to go with him. But you know, that's where we are today in this world. That's good parenting. You just praise God, kids. You got mom and dads. They're going to bring you to church. Look, you're here on a Wednesday night. It's interesting. I was asking Brother Scott, uh, his daughters, the other day. I says, you like coming to church on a Wednesday night? They go, oh, yeah. I mean, what kind of kids like going to church? <laughs> Amen. Kids with parents that like going to church. If the parents don't like going to church, the kids won't like going to church. They're going to take on your characteristics. That's what's going to happen. And if these kids are going to succeed, it's going to be because mom and dad succeed. Amen. I tell you, the story is clear over and over. You know, kids, I I always say this. The gospel was written and given by God for children. Our problem is we're too old and we think we're too smart. But you know what? God made it that kids would receive it just like that. If, If there was a kid and they hadn't been given all these stinking social media and the TV and the garbage and the thing that's filling their head... And if you would just keep that out of their brain, at the time of their understanding, seven, eight years old, you'd sit them down and tell them what Jesus did. I'll guarantee you, 99% of them would get saved. Maybe even 100. I don't know. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, oh, no, kids can't understand. They've got to be older. I says, no, no, parents don't understand. You've got to be younger. The Bible says you've got to be like a child to be converted. Amen? So I don't fall for that stuff when people start talking about they're not old enough. No, sir. (laughs) We're too old. We've got too much garbage in us. Too much filth in the brain. Too many ideas. Too many philosophies. Too much stuff that we've taken on and assimilated into our mind so that we always question the things that are so reasonable that God has given us. Amen? It says in Ephesians 4.11, it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You think about that, folks. We're living in an age where people are being tossed to and fro. The next thing on the internet becomes such an important doctrine. They'll go up to preachers that have studied the word of God and have given their life to the scripture and they'll argue this stupid thing they heard on the internet. You know, I've heard people and they say, I've read the Bible 14 times. I say, well, the problem is you've never let the Bible read you. You can read words, my friend, but you've got to let that Bible into your heart. You've got to let it change you. Amen. I'm not impressed with people saying I've read through the Bible. You can read through the Bible and have zero effect unless you're seeking a holy God. Unless you know that you need Him. Amen. Folks, God gave us teachers, pastors. <laughs> I've had people come into the service. I remember one guy, he says, pastor, he says, pastor, I don't need you. I says, okay. <laughs> that makes me feel really nice inside, warm and fuzzy. He says, because the Bible says 
We all have an anointing of God. I said, so because you have an anointing of God, you no longer need the pastor. That's what he said. He says, why are you here then? Well, I kind of like coming. <laughs> I gave him this verse. He says, he gave. He gave you a pastor. He gave you teachers. You're saying that he shouldn't have? You're saying he was wrong? And the Bible says, for the perfecting of the saints, it means that these pastors and teachers in your life are actually going to help mature you and be perfected in your Christian life. Somehow you don't need that. For the work of the ministry, that means uh, the ministry work is going to continue without your pastor. I don't need church. <laughs> so many times I talk to people, oh yeah, I, I don't believe in church. What are you doing for God? How many times you've gone out and give someone the gospel? These people outside of church not being taught by the word of God and not having a pastor or some or teachers in their life to help guide them are not soul winners. They don't care about souls. Folks, we're living in, in terrible times where Christians are making these excuses. That it says, for the edifying of the body of Christ, why the Lord give you ultimately pastors and teachers that his body could be built up. So you're against him, his body being built up. <laughs> That's important. That's God's plan for our lives. Amen. That's God's plan for the church. So they had, they all had godly leadership. They all had God's leadership. They all had the same potential. They had God's presence. They had God's leadership. They had God's liberty. They had God's victory. They all had it. Yet many of them were overthrown. Many of them were overthrown. The final thing we see is they had the privilege of Christ's life-giving sustenance in their life. They did all eat the same spiritual meat. They did all drink the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. They ate and drank of Christ. Wow. So I've done that, preacher. I, I've a, I focus on Jesus. I keep my mind set on Him. I learn about Him in the Scriptures. I, I eat on Him as I'm taking the bread of life and the written Word of God, and I'm allowing it into my heart, and I learn about Him. That's eating Christ. <laughs> the first thing you did is you, you, you partook of His salvation. That was the first bite you took. And then you continued to take a bite and tasted that the Lord is good and continued on. All of them knew that. All of them. All the fathers. They all drank of Jesus. They all, they all understood how that Jesus, how, how that God would give them the sustenance they needed every day to live. And he would always be there to give them what they needed. And yet for some reason, many of them were overthrown in the wilderness. Christian, think about that. That's us. <laughs> Many times that's us. We have all these things. We know we have these things. But he says, take heed. Lest you think, you're, those that you think that you're standing, you'll fall. Oh no, we've got it all. We've got it under control. They had it all. <laughs> they had all the guidance. They had all the leadership. They had everything they could possibly need. All the privilege that they possibly could have, yet many were overthrown in the wilderness. Isn't that something? <laughs> now, number two is God's judgment for many. God, 1 Corinthians, so we had God's privilege for all. Now we have God's judgment for many in 1 Corinthians 10, 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So all have God's privileges, but many are overthrown. Many did not please God. Please God means to take pleasure in. So you can have all these sayings going for you, and yet you can live a life where you're not pleasing the Lord. Have you ever asked yourself whether you're actually pleasing God with your life? Wow, that's a pretty awesome thing to think about. It's okay to think of it in, in an abstract way. You know, when we're talking about the Scriptures, talk about pleasing God, yeah, please God. But then bring it personal and say, yeah, am I pleasing God? 
Am I pleasing God with that decision I'm making every day? Am I pleasing God with the direction I'm taking my family? Am I pleasing God with the excuses I come up with in the Christian life for not doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I pleasing God? Many did not. They didn't please God because they drew back from the Lord's will. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So the moment I pull back from God, he says, you've just stopped pleasing me. Now this isn't loving you. We know that God loves you no matter what. You could be going forward, backward. You could be going upward, downward. He still loves you. <laughs> you know, Nothing will separate you from the love of God. His love is constant, it's consistent, it will never leave you, it's not going to be in degrees. And now you're doing bad, oh, I don't love you as much. <laughs> no, that's not God's love. God's love is, I love you all the time with the same intensity, no matter what you're doing. <laughs> when you were lost, God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there was not much I was doing then for him, and yet he loved me enough to send his son. After I got saved, you know what? He looked at me, I love you the same. <laughs> After I was saved a little while, and I began to mess up and backslide, you know, he looked at me and says, I still love you. <laughs> Why would he stop loving me? If he loved me before when I was lost on my way to hell and didn't care about who he was, why would he stop loving me when I know who he is and I'm just making bad decisions? The love is consistent. And then we go forward again. He says, I love you. Oh, you must love me more now? No. Did you guys see all that one, that one, uh, <laughs> I was talking about video online where that one comedian was talking about getting the vaccine. And then she was talking about all the vaccines that she got, and this is what she said. Uh, oh, the, Jesus must love me the most. And then immediately what happened is she fainted on this platform, just kaboom, she was on the ground. And they had to go revive her. A lot of people think it's because she was making fun of the COVID vaccine. I don't think so. I think she's making fun of God's love. That's what it was about. He loves me the most. No, you don't understand. He loves you and he loves the person next to you and he loves that person over there and he loves you with an everlasting love and it just does not change. <laughs> you know, you don't make fun of God's love. They drew back. But just because he loves you doesn't mean he is pleased with you. Those are the two things you need to consider yourself here with is the love of God and then the pleasure of God. Because somebody can just focus on the love. Oh, God loves me. God loves me. Well, he does. But ask yourself this, is he pleased with you? He will always love you. It's not going to change. You can make the worst decisions in your life. You can draw back. He says, I still love you. But what he tells us in this passage is, that if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And he's talking about saved people here. He's talking about saved people. Because he goes on to say, but we're not of those that draw back unto perdition. Giving us a security passage. He's saying you'll never draw back where you lose your salvation. <laughs> but you will draw back where you lose my pleasure. That's what he's saying in that passage. They didn't please God because they didn't believe. They didn't believe and seek God's will. They didn't believe in the things that God wanted them to do. They didn't believe that, that God could take care of them the way that he said he was going to take care of them. It was one thing in the wilderness. Okay, I see this, I see this. But when they saw something that they could not compute, they could not get their head around the fact that God can take down those giants. They just couldn't get around. Same way we are. We live life as a Christian. Many things God has shown us that he can do. We say, yes, God is good. We tell everybody how God loves us. We tell us how great God is. But then we meet this one thing, and then we, we draw back. <laughs> because we don't believe we, the way we should in that situation. And in fact, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, so I believe he is, <laughs> and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is the issue, that 
you have to believe that the reward of God is greater than the suffering associated with God. You have to believe that the rewards that God's going to bring into your life are greater than some of that persecution, losing a friend, losing family, whatever the cost is, losing the job, whatever the issue is. See, we draw back when we say, I don't believe that God's reward is greater than what I have right here. That's when we draw back. Well, you can't expect me to give up a salary like that. <laughs> really? You know that you're violating the principles of God. You know that God's not pleased with what you're doing and making all that money. And instead of stopping making that money, believing that whatever God will give you will be greater than what that job will give you, you'd rather draw back. Many do that. Many do that. Over and over and over again. Well, this is why we need to learn this. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Evil heart. Well, I'm not so bad. <laughs> no, it's an evil heart. Folks, when you draw back from God, it's not just about you. You're not, only, you're not just hurting yourself. And the word evil is always about hurting. It's always about harm. When, you're doing, when you have an evil heart, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting other people. It doesn't mean you know you're hurting them. It just means you're being too ignorant to know you're hurting them. And so an evil heart of unbelief is just simply doing something that you think is, oh, it's just this is my business. Nobody should care. No, folks, you are a Christian. You are set on a hill. You are a light to the world. The things that you do have an impact on those around you. Uh, these, <laughs> the children of Israel, the fathers, guess what? The children for 40 years had to follow them, waiting for them to die in the wilderness so they could go into the will of God. Evil heart of unbelief. Amen? And it's amazing how easily we're willing to sacrifice our children for the fact of our unbelief because we simply don't believe that God will reward us and that his, his reward is greater than that which we had have to give up if we go into the will of God for our lives. Amen. Moses, the leader, <laughs> he set the example. He esteemed the reproaches of Christ a greater reward than all of the riches of Egypt. Think about that. He looked at the sufferings that he would have to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a word it used. Christ, he was there, way back there, in, right at the beginning of Israel. <laughs> you know, in the wanderings. Jesus was there. We know that. And he says, I, 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 there's more riches in my suffering for Jesus than in all the gold and silver and anything the Pharaoh and Egypt could give me. That, my friend, is faith. See, there's a reason why these people couldn't go into the will of God. They didn't have that heart. They weren't willing to give up the thing that was dear to them. That's why it talks about <coughs> idolatry. That's why it talks about lusting in your heart. Amen. Many were overthrown in the wilderness. So many did not please God. Many were overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown means to strew or spread, to spread down. So I, what I'm thinking this means is, as God was leading them for that 40 years, one by one, these people dropped off. Well, where do you bury them? <laughs> you bury them right there. So as they were going through the wilderness, oh, this stop, I guess we'll bury the next crew. Then they, the cloud went up and they went to the next place. And well, there's some more dead ones. Let's bury them here. And the Bible says they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the word overthrown means to spread around in the desolate place. Wow. That's kind of like the way we as Christians, you know, throughout our lives, instead of finding the will of God, oh, yeah, I knew that guy. Yeah, I, I remember meeting him in that church. And Well, where is he? I don't know. I don't know what he did for the Lord. And just kind of lost him in the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> Spread around. Not really doing what God wanted him to do. 
I hope that's not what we want. I hope we want to get to that destination. <laughs> get within those boundaries. <laughs> Do the will of God. Not kind of lost in the desolation of the desert. Numbers 14, 16 says, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so bad that you're thinking, you know, God can't, do, God can't do anything with me? The only thing profitable that he can think of for me is to kill me. I do not want to live like that. He says, I'm not able to bring him into land, so therefore, because of that, that's what therefore means, because of that, he's slain them. <laughs> Say, wow, what kind of God is this? A God that cared about the people. Because he knew there was a bunch of kids, 20 years old and younger, that he needed to get into that land. 40 years. If we do not submit to the Lord and follow him wholeheartedly, God will not be able to bring us into God's will for our lives. We'll be left scattered. We'll be set aside of God's purposes. Many people don't care. I mean, you go to your grave not caring, you know, just kind of losing yourself in the world and just kind of, well, I go to church on Sunday and, you know, it's great. But it should be a driving desire of our heart to do the will of God for our lives. And it may just be God wants me to teach Sunday school. Or it may just be I need to be an usher, faithful. I may, whatever it may be. I'm not telling you what God wants you to do. But I'm saying that ought to be a driving desire of your heart to do what God wants you to do. To be in his will. Whatever that may be. <laughs> Maybe it is a missionary. Maybe you are going to be a preacher. Maybe it is a pastor. I don't know. That is God's business. He will call you. Amen. But do you want it? Seek it. <laughs> You must believe that God is and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen. Takes, takes effort to seek him. I, I was thinking of that with Joseph. The, Joseph's father, Jacob, told him to go find his brothers in, in the land there. And he went to Dothan, remember? and he could, They weren't there. And so he asked the people that were there, where, where are these guys? And Oh, well, those guys, yeah, they, they went way that away. Well, this is where most people would say, oh, well, I went to Dothan. This is where my dad told me to go. I'm going to go back and tell him I couldn't find him. But that's not what the Bible says about Joseph. The Bible says that he set his heart to seek. See, that's when the seeking began. <laughs> the seeking didn't begin until he got to Dothan and found out that they weren't there. And now all of a sudden the Bible says that now he's seeking. See, seeking isn't your first 10 steps. <laughs> seeking is your 11 to 20 steps. That's when it seems like, I don't know what, I, what I'm looking for here. And Lord, there's something I'm missing. He says, now this is where you start to seek. Amen. And you know what? He found him. Now, he probably wished he didn't, <laughs> but he found them. He diligently sought. And you know, that's, that's actually the first mention of the word seek in the Bible. It defines seeking for us in the scripture. Oh, yeah, I seek the Lord every day. Do you really? <laughs> you're at the end of your rope. You're at the end of the knowing what to do, and you're seeking him every day. The Bible says you've got to believe that God is, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I believe he's talking about Joseph there. I think Joseph did get rewarded. All I know is if he wouldn't have done that, that last leg of that journey, as hard as it was, he got thrown into a pit, he got sold into slavery, he got put into prison, he got forgotten in prison for three years, but because of that, he was made second in command over Egypt. See, at what point wasn't it the will of God? <laughs> he entered into the will of God. And never did he just curse God or just quit on God. In fact, the Bible says the whole time the Lord was with Joseph. 
Amen? What a great example for us. Amen? Hebrews 3.17 But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Their carcasses fell. You just get this picture of them walking along. Also, thunk, there's another one. They're walking along. Thunk, there's another one. Thunk, there's another one. I wonder if the Lord looks at the church sometimes. Thunk, there's another one. Going out of the will of God, not following me, letting their job take them away from the house of the Lord. There's another one. There's another one. You know, falling in the wilderness. Jude, it talks about him, it says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. They believed. Yet God judged them. So I think the examples are clear here in the scripture where he's saying, guys, don't take the fact that you all have these privileges that God has given you so graciously that somehow you cannot be overthrown. Take heed. Take heed. We got to be asking ourselves these hard questions. We got to say, Lord, am I going to end up in that pile of carcasses? <laughs> then you got to set your heart and say, No, Lord, never. I'm never going to let that happen. By your grace, please help me. But it's going to take you seeking his will for your life every day and staying in it, paying the price for being in it. Amen? It's going to cost you something. It's not easy, you know? It's going to require you to give up stuff. He will peel away things from your life that, that he knows are just hindering you from being what God wants you to be. Now, if you don't look at those things and say God's reward is greater, you're going to draw back. 1 Corinthians 9.27 will be done after this verse. It says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Apostle Paul's great fear was this word castaway means disapproved or disqualified. So the terminology it's referring to is it's referring to a runner in a race. So what he's saying is this. Here I am trying to help all these people run this race. <laughs> saying, hey, you keep going now. Hey, don't give up and give you all the things that you need so you can run this race. And in the meantime, I disqualify myself to finish the race. That was Paul's greatest fear for his life. That he would be disqualified after helping all these people get to the finish line. <laughs> wow. He was concerned that he was so busy telling others how to win the race that he himself would be a castaway. Think about that for yourself. I know... It's easy to give out your opinions <laughs> and tell people, this is what you ought to do. Before you say that, just let this thought consume you a bit. I don't want to be disqualified. <laughs> and if you're going to help people, come from a direction that, Lord, I am not going to give up on this race. I'm not going to get discouraged about this. I do not want to be a castaway. I don't want to be overthrown in the wilderness. Because sometimes what happens is, because we are already drawing back from God, we let our conversation be our evidence that we're not. You know what I mean by that? How many Christians have been backsliding, going the wrong direction at the same time, they're telling people, this is what you ought to do. This is what, because they know everything in the head. Folks, you've got everything memorized. You know exactly what a Christian ought to do and what ought not to do, but you yourself aren't following it and you're telling others to do it even though you're not doing it. You will be disqualified. They will finish the race. That ought to be a fear of our heart. 
No way, God. <laughs> no way. I am finishing this race. <laughs> I'm not going to use my encouraging or my spirituality or whatever it is I have as some kind of a cover to my backslidden state. <laughs> Amen. Because it's very common in Christianity. How many people have said such spiritual things while they're turned around from God? And I'll tell you something, most Christians, they don't just say, glorify Satan, folks. Because they know what the right thing is. <laughs> Remember the friend I told you about? Walked away from the Lord that one day, left church. I'd see him periodically. I'd say, brother, you know you're not, I know I'm not doing right. <laughs> every time, every time he knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what the problem was. He knew why he left the will of God. He knew he shouldn't be out of the will of God. He knew that he should be back in church, but all he would do is recognize what he should be and shouldn't be. But he didn't make a decision to do it. So there's no Christians that turn around and say, I renounce Christ. <laughs> in fact, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. The tense of believing there is an ongoing believing. Now I'd like it to just to mean one time you believe you're saved, but that's not the truth he's trying to get across in that passage. He's saying those that actually believe on Jesus will continue to believe on Jesus. If you've ever met somebody that says, I, I used to be a Christian and now I'm not, there's somebody who has never been a Christian. You understand that? Whosoever believeth. That means if you had, I remember talking to a person in my office and they would say, I don't know if I'm losing my salvation. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I said, well, what do you got to do to be saved? I got to believe. I said, do you believe? Yeah. Oh, well, then I guess you're lost. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe? Yes, I do. Well, then you must be lost. Well, no, you've got to be saved. The devil's just playing with your head. <laughs> He's trying to get your, your focus on the inside. He's trying to turn your faith inward instead of towards Christ where it always ought to be. Because that's really the issue. The issue is you turn your faith in. Well, I don't know if I prayed that prayer right and I don't know if I, I did it hard enough or had enough. Maybe I didn't cry when I prayed that sinner's prayer. <laughs> you know, I, I, you take that faith, you turn it into yourself, you start trying to convince yourself how you're saved by you. Faith don't work like that. Faith is empty when you turn it to yourself. You will always come out doubting if you think that somehow you are a part of the salvation process. <laughs> Amen. And that was this person's problem. Every time they'd come in, they'd say, oh, I'm enjoying my... I said, so tell me what you're thinking about yourself. Well, I, 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 I. So I'd say, well, why don't you try this? Let's, let's just forget about you for a moment. Let's just look at Jesus for a while. <laughs> what did he do for you? Oh, he did this. Did he die for you? Yes, he did. Did he pay for all his sin? Oh, he paid for all my sin. I said, if it, if it, if it rests on him, are you saved? Oh, Yes. See, because faith always has to point outward, <laughs> never inward. And I'll tell you something, you want to help somebody that's doubting their salvation, you help them to take that faith and turn it back around. Turn it back to Jesus. Didn't mean they lost their salvation. Because <laughs> you've asked, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Because <laughs> a person that believes in Jesus will always believe in Jesus. Why would you stop believing in Jesus? <laughs> I laugh about this because how could you stop believing in the one that has never let you down? The one that took you out of that pit that day and you knew it. You know where you were. You know what it was all about. You knew the, the burden that was lifted off your heart. How would you ever not believe him after you believed him? The only person that does that is a person that never believed him. And that I believe with all my heart. Don't listen to these hypotheticals. 
Well, just hypothetically speaking, what if a person, <laughs> you know, well, a person wouldn't do that. A person that believes will believe. Well, I don't know when I got saved. I, I don't know if it was a five-year-old. Uh, there was a time I prayed, and then later on I, I thought maybe I got saved again. Or I, I said, hold on there. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there. So I can't tell you when you got saved, but this is what I can tell you. Let me ask you this. What are you trusting in right now? Well, I trust that Jesus paid for all my sin. I, they're giving me their present faith. I says, okay, <laughs> so you've got a present faith that reflects the scripture. You are saying exactly what the Bible says you're supposed to do if you want to be saved. And you say it right there. You're believing it. I said, so the problem isn't whether you're saved or not. <laughs> Your problem just simply is where that salvation began. If you've got a present faith, it had to start somewhere. It might have been at five or seven or nine. Really, it doesn't matter. But if it means so much to you, at least you've got to nail it down that I have a present faith that reflects the fact that I am a born-again Christian. I do believe on Him, and I'm not trusting in myself. That's present salvation. So now the only conundrum I have here is when did this start? Well, at least I'm not battling the fact of whether I'm saved or not. All I'm doing is trying to figure out where did it begin? <laughs> Amen? And sometimes you talk to God about that after you believe Him for what He says in His Word about your salvation. And He says, oh, okay, now you're right with me. Now let me tell you where you got saved. But before, you were so mixed up about my part in this. You were mixed up about what I did. <laughs> now we're just talking about your bad memory. <laughs> I can help you with that. Amen. And he does. But you got to know you're saved. Some were to ask you, how do you get saved? Well, this is what I, do you believe? Oh, with all of my heart. And I say, and I always joke, well, then you must be lost. <laughs> you must be lost. They'll look at me. Yeah, that's stupid. I know it's stupid. It's about as stupid as what you're thinking. And for us, you know where we came from? Our Mennonite background? Very common. Because when you got saved or made a decision as a child or whenever, you never had somebody come to you and say, oh, I'm so glad you got saved. In fact, you never told anybody. Because all they would say is, well, we hope when in the end you'll see. Wait till the end. <laughs> then we'll see. <laughs> that doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence, and it steals away the joy of the moment. But if you had had a mom and dad that's, oh, I'm so glad you got saved. And then start to explain about the new birth and what took place there, regeneration, all these things. Oh, that happened to me. Yeah, that's your spiritual birthday, man. A birthday? Well, you never forget your birthday. Amen? <laughs> Anyways. I don't know how I got off and all that, but it sure fit somehow. <laughs> Amen. I hope you know you're saved. But you can be disqualified from the race. All those privileges, all those things you have, all the fathers, all of them, all of them, all of them did this. All of them had God. All of them had his presence. All of them had his promises. All of them had good leadership. All of them had all of that, but many were overthrown. Will you make a decision not to be overthrown? Well, you say, well, we all by the grace of God. No, no, no. That's an excuse for, to keep that door open. Close the door. Say, no, Lord, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to set my heart towards you, and I'm going to do God's will for my life. Folks, every preacher I know, before they ever got behind a pulpit, had a moment like that. Because you can't do this, oh, by the grace of God, I, uh, maybe I'll make it or not. <laughs> Folks, that's the last thing you want to hear from your preacher. And you say, oh, man, a preacher's not even secure, then how in the world can we ever be secure? Amen? Oh, no. There are moments of life 
where you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Amen? And close that door. Paul closed the door. No, no, I'm going to serve God with my life. <laughs> I fought a good fight. You know, the fight of faith, he did it right to the end. It cost him his life. He wasn't worried about his head. He knew everything that was going to happen after that. Wasn't a problem. Amen? How are the rewards in your eyes of the Lord? <laughs> are you measuring that against your battles? I don't know if I... I don't know if I can be more faithful to the things of God. I don't know if I can give up that hours. I don't know if I can. Is this the way the rewards of God balances with your life? <laughs> you know, it should really be about, like Moses, the reproach of Christ is a greater reward to me than all the riches of Egypt. All the riches of the world. Just suffering for Jesus is more valuable than all the riches of the world. Wow, start there. <laughs> Amen. That, my friend, is faith. That will keep you going forward. Let's bow our heads. Next week, we'll look at the reasons that many are overthrown. But for today, you're going to make a decision? All had those privileges, but many, many were overthrown. God was not able to bring them in, but he had to slay them in the wilderness. Why don't you make a decision and say, you know what, Lord? <laughs> that is not going to be me. I believe you. I'm going to be like a Caleb. We are well able to overcome. I'm going to be like a Joshua. Yes, let's go in. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to seek his will for my life at the expense of everything I have. I want God.